Chapter Ten of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Ten: The Combat. I was thinking much of what you said last night, Frida said at breakfast. How is it that you, whose religion is, as you say, a peaceful one, can yet have performed so many deeds of valour and bloodshed? I am fighting for my home and my country and my religion, Edmund said. Christianity does not forbid men to defend themselves, for did it so a band of pagans might ravage all the Christian countries in the world. I fight not because I love it, I hate bloodshed, and would rather die than plunder and slay peaceful and inoffending people. You have been in England, and have seen the misery which war has caused there. Such misery, assuredly, I would inflict on none. I fight only to defend myself and my countrymen and women. Did your people leave our land, I would gladly never draw sword again. But would you—but what would you do with yourself? Frida asked, in tones of surprise. How would you pass your time if there were no fighting? I should have plenty to do, Edmund said, smiling. I have my people to look after, I have to see to their welfare, to help those who need it, to settle disputes, to rebuild the churches and houses which have been destroyed. There would be no difficulty in spending my time. But how could a man show himself to be a hero, the Danish girl asked, if there were no fighting? Well, there would be no occasion for heroes, Edmund said, at least of heroes in the sense you mean, that is, of men famous principally for the number they have slain and the destruction and misery they have caused. Our religion teaches us that mere courage is not the highest virtue. It's one possessed as much by animals as by men. Higher virtues than this are kindness, charity, unselfishness, and a desire to benefit our fellow-creatures. These virtues make a man a truer hero than the bravest Viking who ever sailed the seas. Even you, Freda, worshipper of Odin as you are, must see that it is a higher and better life to do good to your fellow-creatures than to do evil. It sounds so, the girl said hesitatingly, but the idea is so new to me that I must think it over before I can come to any conclusion. Freda then went on about her occupations, and Edmund, knowing that Sigbert would not return for some time, as he was going with Bjorn to a council which was to be held early in the day, strolled down to look at the galleys ranged along the beach. These varied greatly in form and character. Some of the sailing-ships were large and clumsy, but the galleys for rowing were lightly and gracefully built. They were low in the water, rising to a lofty bow, which sometimes turned over like the neck of a swan, at other times terminated in a sharp iron prow, formed for running down a hostile boat. Some of them were of great length, with seats for twenty rowers on either side, while all were provided with sails, as well as oars. When the hour for dinner approached, he returned to Sigbert's tent. The Jarl had not yet come back from the council. When he did so, Edmund perceived at once that he was flushed and angry. "'What has disturbed you, father?' Frida asked, as on hearing his voice she entered the tent. "'Has aught gone wrong at the council?' "'Yes,' the Jarl replied, "'much has gone wrong. Bjorn and I had not concluded our bargain when we went to the council.' We had indeed no difficulty about the terms, but we had not clasped hands over them, as I was going back to his tent after the council was over. At the council the expedition against France was discussed, and it was proposed that we should consult the gods as to the chances of the adventure. 
Then the Jarl Eric rose and proposed that it should be done in the usual way, by a conflict between a Dane and a captive. This was, of course, agreed to. He then said that he understood that there was in the camp a young Saxon of distinguished valour, and that he proposed that Svein, the son of Bjorn, should fight with him. Svein had expressed to him his willingness to do so, should the council agree. I rose at once and said that the Saxon was no longer a captive, since I had ransomed him because he had once done me a service, but upon being pressed I was forced to admit that the bargain had not been concluded. I must acquit Bjorn of any share in the matter, for it came upon him as much by surprise as it did upon me. It seems that it was all Spain's doing. He must have taken the step as having a private grudge against you. Have you had any quarrel with him? No, Edmund replied, he has ever shown himself haughty and domineering, but we have come to no quarrel. Well, at any rate, he wants to kill you, Sigbert said. I did my best to prevent it, pointing out that the combat ought to take place between a Frank and a Dane. However, the Northmen are always glad to see a good fight, and having satisfied themselves that in point of age and strength you were not unfairly matched, they decided that the conflict should take place. He is taller, and I think somewhat stronger than you, and has proved himself a valiant fighter, and I would give much if the combat could be avoided. I fear him not, Edmund said quietly, though I would fain that this could be avoided. Had I met Sven under a battlefield in England, I would have slain him as a natural enemy. But to fight him in cold blood, either as a matter of augury or to furnish amusement for the assembly, likes me not. However, I must of course defend myself, and if harm comes to him, it's no blame of mine. You will have no easy victory, I can tell you, Sigbert said, for none among our young Danes bears a higher reputation. But after the combat is over, how shall I stand? Edmund asked. For if I defeat or slay Svein, I shall still be his father's slave. That you will not, Sigbert replied. In these cases the captive, if victorious, is always restored to liberty. But at any rate you shall fight as a free man, for when I have finished my dinner I will go to Bjorn and conclude our bargain. Do not look so cast down, Freda. A Northman's daughter must not turn pale at the thought of a conflict. Svein is the son of my old friend, and was, before he took to arms, your playfellow, and since then has, methought, been anxious to gain your favour though all too young yet for thinking of taking a wife. But never mind, there are as good as he to be found, and if our young Saxon here proves his conqueror, other suitors will come. Never fear. Freda was silent, but her face flushed painfully, and Edmund saw the tears falling down her cheeks as she bent over her plate. After the meal was over, Sigbert again went out, and Edmund, approaching Freda, said, Do not fret, Freda. If it should be that I find my skill in arms greater than that of Svein, I promise you that, for your sake, I will not wound him mortally." "'I care not,' the girl said passionately. "'Spare him not for my sake, for I hate him, and were there no other Norseman in the world, I would never be wife to his.' So saying, she left the tent. Egbert now regretted the chance which had assigned him to Sigbert, for he would rather have taken his chance to escape by sea than have awaited the conflict with Svein. But he could not carry his plan of escape into effect now for it would seem as if he had fled the conflict. That this would be a desperate one he had no doubt. The course which Svein had taken showed a bitter feeling of hatred against him, and even were it not so the young Northman would, fighting in the presence of the leaders of his nation, assuredly do his best to conquer. But Edmund had already tried his strength with older and more powerful men than his adversary, and had little fear of results. The news of the approaching conflict caused considerable excitement in the Danish camp, 
and Edmund's figure was narrowly scrutinized as he wandered through it. All who had been engaged in the war in Wessex had heard of Edmund, and there was no slight curiosity, when the news went abroad, that the Saxon leader was a captive in the camp, to see what he was like. At first, when it was bruited abroad that Svein, the son of Jarl Bjorn, was to fight this noted Saxon champion, the idea was that the enterprise was a rash one, strong and valiant as Svein was known to be for a young man. But when it was seen that Edmund was no older than he, and to the eye less strong and powerful, they felt confident in the power of their champion to overcome him. Sigbert spared no pains to see that his guest had an even equal chance. He procured for him a strong and well-made helmet which fitted him comfortably, and gave him the choice out of a large number of shields and swords. Edmund selected a weapon which answered nearly in weight and balance that which he was accustomed to wield. There was feasting again that night in Sigbert's tent, but he did not allow Edmund to join in it, insisting after the meal was over that he should retire to a small hut hard by. "'You will want your head and your nerves in good order to-morrow,' he said. "'Feasting is good in its way, and the night before battle I always drink deeply. But for a single combat it were best to be prudent.' As Edmund left the tent, Freda, who had not appeared at dinner, came up to him. "'I have been crying all day,' she said simply. "'I know not why, for I have often seen my father go out to battle without a tear. I think you must have upset me with your talk this morning. I hope that you will win, because it was wrong and unfair, Sven, to force this battle upon you, and I hate him for it. I shall pray Odin to give you victory. You don't believe in him, I know. Still, my prayers can do you no harm.' "'Thank you,' Edmund said. "'I shall pray to one greater and better than Odin, but weep not any longer, for I trust neither of us will be killed. I shall do my best to guard myself, and shall try not to slay him, for this fight is not for my nation or for my religion, but concerns myself only.' The following morning the Northmen assembled. The Jarls and other leading men formed the inner line of a circle, some thirty yards in diameter. The others stood without. Jarl Eric entered the ring with Svein while Edmund, accompanied by Sigbert, entered at the other side of the circle. "'I protest,' Sigbert cried in a loud voice, "'against this conflict taking place. Edmund the Saxon is no captive here but a free man and my guest. Moreover, being a Saxon, the issue of this fight between him and a Northman can serve no purpose as an augury as to the success of our expedition against the Franks. Therefore do I protest against the conflict.' There was again a consultation between the leaders, for a murmur of approbation had run round the ranks of the spectators, who, it was evident, were impressed in favour of the young Saxon, and considered that the Jarl's words were just and reasonable. Eric spoke for a minute with Svein. "'I feel,' he said in a loud voice, "'that when Jarl Siegbird says is reasonable, that no augury can be drawn from the fight, and then, since Edmund is no longer a captive and a friend of Siegbert's, he cannot be forced into fighting in order that we may have an augury. But the Saxon, though so young, has won a reputation even among us, the enemies of his race. And my friend Svein, who has shown himself one of the bravest of our young men, considers that he has cause of quarrel with him, and challenges him to fight, not necessarily to the death or till one is slain, but till the Jarls here assembled do pronounce one or the other to be the victor. This is a fair challenge. First, there is a private quarrel. Next, there is emulation between these young men, who may fair claim to be the champions of the youth of the two races. Such a challenge the Saxon will hardly refuse. 
In accordance with the customs of the day, it would have been impossible for Edmund to have refused such a challenge without disgrace, and he did not for a moment think of doing so. "'I am ready to fight Svein,' he said. "'I have no great cause of quarrel with him, but if he conceives that he has grounds of quarrel with me, that is enough. As to championship of the Saxons, we have no champions. We fight not for personal honour or glory, but for our homes, our countries, and our religion.' each doing his best according to the strength that God has given him, and without thought of pride on the one hand or envy on the other, because the strength or courage of one may be somewhat greater than that of another. Still, as a Saxon standing here is the only representative of my nation in an assembly of Northmen, I cannot refuse such a challenge, for to do so would be to infer that we Saxons are less brave than you. Therefore I am ready for the combat." The Northmen clashed their weapons against their shields in token of their approval of the young Saxons' words, and the young champions prepared for the combat. They were naked to the waist, save for shield and helmet. Below the waist each wore a short and tightly fitting garment, covered with plates of brass. The legs were naked, and each wore a pair of light sandals. Their weapons were long, straight swords. The weapon Edmund had chosen was considerably lighter than that of his opponent, but was of toughest steel on which were engraved in rough characters prayers to Woden for victory. The difference in height between the combatants was considerable. Edmund stood five feet ten, but looked shorter from the squareness and width of his shoulders. Svein was nearly four inches taller, and he too was very strongly built. His muscles indeed stood out in stronger development than did those of Edmund, and if pure strength was to win the day, few of those who looked on doubted that the Dane would be the victor. The combat was a long one. For some time Edmund contented himself with standing upon the defensive and guarding the tremendous blows which Svein rained upon him. In spite of the efforts of the Northmen, he could neither beat down the Saxon's guard nor force him to fall back a single step. Again and again the rattle of the spectators' arms clashed, and approval of Edmund's steady resistance to his opponent's assaults. The Norsemen delighted beyond all things in a well-fought encounter. Each man, himself a warrior, was able to appreciate the value of the strokes and parries. The betting at the commencement had run high upon Svein, and horses, armor, arms, and slaves had been freely wagered upon his success. But as the fight went on the odds veered round, and the demeanor of the combatants had as much to do with this as the skill and strength shown by Edmund in his defense. The Dane was flushed and furious. His temper gave way under the failure of his assaults. The Saxon, on the contrary, fought as calmly and coolly as if practicing with blunted weapons. His eyes never left those of his adversary. A half-smile played on his lips, and although drops of perspiration from his forehead showed how great were his exertions, his breathing hardly quickened. Twice Svein drew back for breath, and Edmund, each time, instead of pressing him, dropped the point of his sword and waited for him to renew the combat. At present he had scarcely struck a blow, and while his own shield was riven in several places and his helmet dinted, those of Svein were unmarked. At the third assault Svein came up determined to end the conflict, and renewed the attack with greater fury than before. Three times his sword descended with tremendous force, but each time it met the blade of the Saxon. The fourth time his arm was raised, then there was a flash and a sudden shout from the crowd. With a mighty blow Edmund had smitten full on his opponent's lifted arm, and striking it just above the elbow, the sword clove through flesh and bone, and the severed limb, still grasping the sword, fell to the ground. A large shout of approval burst from the Danes. Although the conqueror was their enemy, they appreciated so highly the virtues of coolness and courage that their applause was no less hearty than if the victor had been a countryman. 
Svein had fallen almost the instant the blow had been struck. The ring was at once broken up, and his friends ran to him. The Norsemen were adept at treatment of wounds, and everything had been prepared in case of emergencies. A bandage was instantly tied tightly round the upper part of the arm to stop the rush of blood, and the stump was then dipped into boiling pitch, and Svein, who had become almost instantly insensible from the loss of blood, was carried to his father's tent. According to custom, handsome presents of swords and armor were made to Edmund by those who had won by his success. It would have been churlish to refuse them, and Edmund had no thought of doing so, for he needed money, and these things in those days were equivalent to wealth. "'You have done well and gallantly indeed, my young friend,' Siegbert said, as, followed by several slaves bearing Edmund's presence, they returned to the tent. "'I am glad you did not slay him, for I think not that he will die. Such a blow given in battle would assuredly have been fatal, but here the means of staunching the blood were at hand, and I trust for Bjorn's sake that he will recover, but whether or no he brought it on himself.' On reaching the tent, Freda ran out radiant. "'I hear that you have conquered, and I am glad indeed. It serves him right for all it say that he forced the fight upon you.' "'I did not know that your sympathies were so strongly against Svein,' Sigbert said in a somewhat reproachful tone. "'He's always been your devoted follower.' "'He has always been my tyrant, father, for he has always insisted on my doing his pleasure. But if he had been ten times my follower, and had been a valiant warrior instead of a youth, and I a maiden of twenty instead of a girl of fifteen, I should still be glad that he was conquered, because without any reason for quarrel he has sought to slay this Saxon youth who did us such a great service, and to whom, as he knew, we were so indebted. Sigbert smiled. Hitherto I have wondered, daughter mine, at the reason which induced Svein to challenge Edmund, but now methinks I understand it. Svein has, as his father has told me, youth as he is, set his heart on winning your hand when you shall reach the age of womanhood, and it is just because Edmund has done you and me service that he hates him. You are young, child, for your bright eyes to have caused bloodshed. If you go on like this there will be no end to the trouble I shall have on your account before I get you fairly wedded. Freda colored hotly. That is nonsense, father. Another five years will be soon enough to begin to think of such things. At any rate, she said with a laugh, I am rid of Spain, for he can hardly expect me ever to love a one-armed man. There have been brave warriors, Sigmund said, with but one arm. It makes no difference, Frida laughed. If he had fifty arms, I should never love him. Edmund now entreated Sigbert to repay himself from the presents he had received for the goods he had the evening before given to Bjorn as the price of his liberty. But this the Jarl would not hear of. Edmund then begged him to buy with them of Bjorn the four Saxon slaves with whom he had agreed to attempt an escape, and to expend the rest of the presents in freeing as many other Saxon prisoners as he could. This Sigbert did, and by the evening Edmund had the satisfaction of finding around him twelve Saxons whose freedom he had purchased. He remained as the guest of Sigbert until the expedition sailed in the last week of March. Then with the twelve Saxons he embarked in Sigbert's ship, which, instead of keeping with the others, sailed for the mouth of the Thames. The wind was favorable and the passage quick, and three days after sailing Edmund and his companions were disembarked on the coast of Kent. His adieus with Sigbert were hearty and earnest. "'I would you had been a Northman,' the Jarl said, "'for I love you as a son, and methinks that when the time comes, had you been so inclined, you might have really stood in that relation to me, for I guess that my little Frida would not have said no had you asked her hand. But now our paths are to part. I shall never war again with the Saxons, for indeed there is but scant booty to be gained there, 
while you are not likely again to be cast upon our shores. But should the fates ever throw us together again, remember that you have a friend for life in Jarl Siegbert. Freda, who had accompanied her father as usual, wept bitterly at the parting, which, however, she did not deem to be as final as it appeared to her father, for the evening before, as she was standing on the poop with Edmund, he had said to her, "'You will not forget me, Freda. We are both very young yet, but some day, when the wars are over and England no longer requires my sword, I will seek you again.' "'Is that a promise, Edmund?' "'Yes, Freda, a solemn promise.' "'I will wait for you,' she said simply, "'if it were till the end of my life.' The youth and girl ratified the promise by a kiss, and Freda, as through her tears she watched the boat which conveyed Edmund and his companions to shore, felt sure that some day she should see her Saxon hero again. On landing Edmund soon learned that the Danes were everywhere masters, and since the autumn nothing had been heard of the king, who was supposed to be somewhere in hiding. In every village through which they passed they found evidence of the mastership of the Danes. Many of the houses were burnt or destroyed. The people were all dressed in the poorest garb, and their sad faces and listless mien told of the despair which everywhere prevailed. In every church the altars had been thrown down, the holy emblems and images destroyed, the monks and priests had fled across the sea or had been slain. The Danish gods, Thor and Woden, had become the divinities of the land, and the Saxons, in whom Christianity had but recently supplanted the superstitions of paganism, were fast returning to the worship of the pagan gods. Edmund and his companions were shocked at the change. On reaching home they found that the ravages of the Danes had here been particularly severe, doubtless in revenge for the heavy loss which had been sustained by them in their attack upon Edmund's fortification. His own abode had been completely leveled to the ground, and the villages and farmhouses for the most part wholly destroyed. His people were lying in rude shelters which they had raised, but their condition was very much better than that of the people in general. The news of Edmund's return spread like wildfire, and excited the most extreme joy among his people, who had long given him up for lost. He found to his delight that the dragon had returned safely and that she was laid up in her old hiding-place. The great amount of spoil with which she was loaded had enabled her crew largely to assist their friends, and it was this which had already raised the condition of the people above that of their neighbors. Houses were being gradually rebuilt, animals had been brought from districts which had been less ravaged by the Danes and something approaching comfort was being rapidly restored. Upon the day after Edmund's return, Egbert arrived. Feeling sure of Edmund's death, he had taken no steps toward rebuilding the house, but was living a wild life in the woods, when the news reached him that Edmund had reappeared. His own large share of the booty, with that of Edmund, he had buried, with a portion set aside for the king, in the wood near the spot where the dragon was laid up. They had passed up the parrot at night, unobserved by the Danes, and after taking the masts out of the dragon and dismantling her, they had laid her up in the hole near the river where she was built. There was little fear of her discovery there, for the Danes were for the most part gathered in winter quarters at the great camp near Chippenham. Egbert's delight at the reappearance of Edmund was unbounded, for he loved him as a son, and it was a long time before their joy at the meeting was sufficiently calmed down to enable them to tell each other the events which had happened since they parted three months before. Egbert's narrative was indeed brief. He had remained two or three days off the coast of Norway, in the lingering hope that Edmund might in some way have escaped death, and might yet come off and join him. At the end of a week this hope had faded, and he sailed for England. Being winter, but few Danish galleys were at sea, 
and he had encountered none from the time he set sail until he arrived off the coast at the mouth of the Parrot. He had entered the river at night, so as to be unseen by any in the village at its mouth, and had, after the dragon was laid up, passed his time in the forest. Edmund's narration was much more lengthy, and Egbert was surprised indeed to find that his kinsman owed his freedom to the jarl whose vessel they had captured at the mouth of the Humber. End of chapter 10 Recording by Mike Harris